Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me this Wednesday, February 22nd. Well, we have interesting news to report for the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. There were two Democrats and two Republicans vying to be in the final two that go to a runoff on April 4th. And uh, we have those names. Daniel Kelly, the arch conservative appointed originally to the Supreme Court by Scott Walker. But uh, when his term came up for a vote four years later, eh, he was voted out. But he is the conservative in this race. The conservative in this race that has the support of Illinois' Uline family. And that is something that we are going to be talking about in much, much greater detail a little bit later, starting at 2.30, when Pat Kreitlow from the Up North News joins us. The Uline family, in some circles, is credited for just barely pushing Ron Johnson over the line when he was being challenged by Mandela Barnes. The money that this family is spending on the most racist, far-right, hard-right candidates they can find is staggering. Is staggering. You know, if you know anybody who in a professional capacity uses the Uline packaging materials, like cardboard boxes, like that's how they're making their billions. Please reconsider that. Please find another vendor. You are indirectly fueling a family that is ultimate MAGA, election-denying, racist, horrible, just the worst political stances, the worst support, and sadly, they have millions of dollars. Daniel Kelly talked about how even in this primary, the U-lines for this primary the U-Lines had already given him over a million dollars. You know how I sometimes point out how Mike Flynn, the disgraced general and security executive, the one, the, the one who should be in jail but isn't, he said some time ago that um, he didn't really understand uh, why we weren't a country that just has one religion. You know, we should just, there should just be one religion in this country, which is, of course, the antithesis of the kind of thinking we were founded on. We were founded on an attitude of live and let live. You want to be a certain religion, you want to practice it, fine. But um, Mike Kelly was like, well, I don't understand why we just can't be a white Christian nation. Really, Mike? Okay. Well, I would imagine that the U-Lines 
would be in agreement with Mr. Flynn. It is just, um, we're going to get into the kind of spending. Let me just say briefly that in the last year, I think it was in the last year for which we have data, I don't know if it's 20 to 21 or 21 to 22, they spent more money than any other Republican donor. They spent more money than any other Republican donor. Far north of $50 million. They bought Ron Johnson. Oh, we're going to talk more about that, about the little, the little thank you he gave them legislatively. <clears throat> yeah. So Dan Kelly got more votes than Jennifer Darrow, the other conservative, or Everett Mitchell, the other Democrat. He did not get as many votes as Janet Protasewicz. As a matter of fact, and here's the interesting thing. Now, remember, if the U-lines drop a ton of money in this race, and it is expected that is exactly what they will do, they might put their finger on the scale here. But when you look at the Democratic votes, those votes that went to Janet Protasewicz, who came out on top by a wide margin, Daniel Kelly was next with Jennifer Doro and Everett Mitchell making up the last three and four slots in that pack. But if you add together the Democratic vote and the Republican vote, the Democrats have rough, came away with roughly 10% more of the vote in this race. You would think that when people go to the polls, what, in, um, God, it's not even two months. They go to the polls basically five and a half weeks from now. Since that's what we got this time around, you'd think that in, on April 4th, the results would be similar. Common sense would tell you the results would be similar. We will see what five and a half weeks of Uline money does. Deceptive ads, attack ads, they can be very effective, particularly if they come late in the game, especially attack ads, because... It doesn't give the person being attacked a lot of time to respond and get their message out. That's why people are still so mad at James Comey, who uh, in the final weeks before the presidential election said, oh, well, we're going to investigate Hillary Clinton's emails again. And then a couple of weeks later, he made the announcement, "Okay, we did. And we didn't find any wrongdoing. But it was so late in the game that what people remembered was that there was an investigation into her emails, not that it turned out to be nothing. It's hard to retroactively quantify those kinds of things, but they definitely have an effect. And if the Uline money allows Daniel Kelly to attack Janet Protasewicz in the final weeks of the campaign, not giving her sufficient time to respond and get that response out to people, Who knows? Who knows what could happen? 
Um, Daniel, oh, well, we're going to talk more about Daniel Kelly with Pat Kreitlow, but there is some real, real unsavory stuff connected with this guy. Okay, so that's how it turned out. Janet Protasewicz ran away with the largest number of voters. Daniel Kelly came in second. After that was Jennifer Doro and Everett Mitchell. So April 4th, Janet Protasewicz and Daniel Kelly will go head to head. Again, Daniel Kelly was on the Supreme Court for four years. He was appointed to fill a term. He was appointed by Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker. And when he, um, you know, incumbency is usually pretty powerful. It really gives you a leg up, even if it doesn't result in a lot of extra donations to your campaign, which it does. Everybody wants to back the person who they think is going to stay in power. There's name recognition. I mean, this is something, you know, it's like when somebody gets appointed to fulfill the term of a congressperson or even a state senator or state rep. When it comes time to vote, that person has a leg up. People perceive them as the one in office. And unless they've done something to really offend the person or 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 had a real horrible controversy, most people will stick with an incumbent. It is a very powerful boost to be the person already in the seat. Daniel Kelly was in the seat for four years and couldn't hang on to it. Let us cross our fingers that history repeats itself. As I said, starting at uh, 2.30, we're going to talk to Pat Kreitlau uh, from Up North News about all things Wisconsin. But um, until then, there actually is other news of this day, even other election news. More good news for Democrats. I'll share that with you when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT820. Wisconsin isn't the only place where uh, there was an election. There was an election in Virginia. A Democrat was elected to office to serve in Congress who uh, died of cancer. There was a special election last night to fill that seat. The Democrat was an African-American woman by the name of Jennifer McClellan, state representative. She faced an African-American man uh Representing the Republican Party, Pastor Leon Benjamin, former Navy vet and pastor. Jennifer McClellan kept that seat in the Democratic column. She uh, ended up by uh, estimates of the Associated Press that she was probably, the, the final tally, she was probably going to beat Mr. Benjamin by a two-to-one ratio. This race has gotten a lot of attention because she now becomes the first African-American woman to represent Virginia in Congress. It is um, it is a real milestone. She has been working in the statehouse to 
expand voter rights. Her opponent, Leon Benjamin, was an unabashed anti-abortion candidate, you know, sort of a very typical conservative, super conservative, had said some very problematic things about uh, gay people in the past. Um, There was an interview where the reporter sort of asked him about that. You know, hey, you say you're going to represent all the people, but, you know, from the pulpit, you've you've excoriated gay people. And his response was, well, you know, gay people care about gas prices, too. Okay. All right. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, So congratulations. Congratulations. And uh, we are really happy to see Virginia State Senator Jennifer McClellan go to Congress to represent the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, One of the things that um, she supported while she was in the state legislature, she supported um, getting the Equal Rights Amendment to move forward. The Equal Rights Amendment was a constitutional amendment that was going to add to our Constitution the fact that women should have equal rights, because, of course, it's not exactly written in there now, is it? And it has gotten passage in enough states to make it a constitutional amendment. But when it was first put forth, there was a time frame that was added to it. Like, we need to get a certain number of states to okay this before we alter the Constitution. But the time frame came and went, and there were a couple of states short. And now there are sufficient votes. Enough states have voted on the Equal Rights Amendment to make it a part of the Constitution. But, you know, people are arguing, well, you know, like statute of limitations ran out. So there is a Judiciary Committee hearing in Washington today that is going to focus on the Equal Rights Amendment. It is definitely something that a lot of Democrats want to make happen, want it to be a part of our Constitution. Exactly how that's going to happen, if that's going to happen, when that's going to happen, we don't know. But at least we do know that there are people who want it to happen, people who are trying to make it happen, and who are still working on it. It has not been forgotten. It has not been abandoned. I don't know if you saw the um, the Phyllis Schlafly movie. She was a housewife from Illinois who almost singly handed, you know, because when the Equal Rights Amendment was first suggested, it was thought it was going to be a no-brainer. Boom, boom, boom. It was going to get passed. It was going to be rewritten. And then Phyllis, who was... She, she was the perfect example of why we need the ERA. This was a woman who should have been in politics. This was a woman who should have been in corporate, the corporate boardrooms of this country. She was so bright and she was so driven, but she was reined in by this idea that the little woman stays at home, except the irony is once she took on this cause, she didn't stay at home. She wasn't home raising her kids. She was traveling around the country making speeches 
she was the embodiment of why women need this amendment? Because not everybody had the resources available to a wealthy white woman at the time? Or even now? It was so hypocritical. But it was... It was like the only way that the world gave her an opportunity to make a difference. And even though it meant stabbing in the back all the other women, it was was her shot. It was her shot. So anyway, there's a Judiciary Committee meeting today um, that is... um, talking about the Judiciary Committee. Um, Andy, just let me know that uh, we've gotten a call from Jim from Chicago. Go ahead, Andy. Let's uh, let's add Jim to our conversation right now. Hey, Jim, how are you? Thanks, Joan. I, I'm just uh, really puzzled by this rehabilitation of Trump. I think they're stuck with him, and they're starting to realize it now. There's going to be a rematch of Biden and Trump. And Tucker Carlson getting 48 hours of the insurrection to uh, McCarthy given to to, uh, Tucker Carlson. I suppose he's going to pick out whatever he can to rehabilitate Trump and deny that uh, he was really the instigator of it. And the other thing is the emails, you know, the big lawsuit they have, uh, the opinion has against uh, uh, Fox. Fox News. Yeah, this ability. This, how, if they can rehabilitate this gentleman, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go to Paris. And I don't know what. I'm gonna do. But, well, but, Jim, anyway. here, that's really interesting because I saw um, that Donald Trump apparently is going to East Palestine, Ohio, and I'm from Ohio. Everybody's saying Palestine. If you live there, it's Palestine. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah. he's going there. And how is that going to go over? He is the one that removed the rules, the safety rules that would have prevented this from happening. And he's going there like, what? A savior? Are you kidding me? I don't. Anyway, anyway, have a great show, Joe. Thank you. <laughs> now that you got me all worked up, you're just going to leave me. OK, fine. But, yeah, Donald Trump is traveling to Ohio And, you know, God knows what lies are going to come out of this man's mouth because President Obama put measures in place, safety measures, things that the uh, railroads wanted to do. But the railroads didn't want to spend the money. As one expert said, the braking system for a lot of these trains is like the same braking system that they've been used using for 140 years. There are newer, better braking systems, but, you know, they cost money. And um, the train companies don't really want to spend that money. So they got Donald Trump to undo all of the new safety regulations and equipment regulations that the Obama administration put in place. Oh, he delighted. He delighted in undoing anything Barack Obama did. It was like the one thing that really gave him joy was to undo something Barack Obama did. If those regulations had been in place, the the experts who I've heard interviews say this accident would not have happened. Wouldn't have happened. It happened because Donald Trump 
pulled all those requirements and regulations, and now he's going to travel to Ohio like some kind of savior? Seriously? I hope the local news media point out the irony here that the very man who created the situation that led to this disaster is now coming to visit them. You know, we've we've learned this and we continue to see it. He is a man who is utterly without shame. It is impossible to shame this man. Okay, take a deep cleansing breath, Joan. I got kind of um, off on a tangent there. Where was I? Where was I going before Jim got me all riled up here? Um, You may have heard at the top of the hour this thing about Putin pulling out of the START Treaty, which sounds pretty ominous. But the foreign minister, the Russian foreign minister, made a statement saying, um, well, we're, yeah, yeah, we're pulling, yeah, we're pulling out of the START Treaty. Yeah, we're, we're definitely doing that, but we're still going to abide by its provisions. What the hell does that mean? So it's just like a gesture? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we're uh, any closer to nuclear war based on what the Russian foreign uh, deputy is saying. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Pat Kreitlow from Up North News. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I said, there was a very important election in Wisconsin yesterday. Four people vying to get on the uh, Illinois, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Two of them will be in a runoff election to be held April 4th. Uh, I was kind of hoping that maybe the two uh, liberals would be (laughs) in the race but, you know, that's not how it worked out. So we have uh, the front runner out of all four candidates, Janet Protasewicz, Democrat, liberal, endorsed by Tammy Baldwin, who on April 4th will be facing ultra-conservative Daniel Kelly, uh, a favorite of Illinois' Uline family. They've already spent, by his own admission, more than seven figures to get him this far. God knows how much money they'll spend to try to get him on the court, uh, even though they don't live in Wisconsin. Pat Kreitlow is here to talk about this particular contest and give us some insider information on um, how things ended up the way they did. And we will talk about all things Wisconsin for the next hour. If you uh, feel like joining our conversation about Wisconsin Politics, 773-763-9278. You can text me on that line. Our text line, very generously sponsored by Camp Kupagani. Or you can call on that line and talk to Pat and I on the radio. Pat, welcome back. How are you? 
Uh, I'm cold. I'm hunkered down. The uh, the snow is uh, just getting started with the second wave, and so what better thing to do than to batten down the hatches and uh, talk politics? Because you know we just had another big election in Wisconsin, and guess what? In six weeks, there's going to be another big election in Wisconsin. It is it is the way of our people? <laughs> it is the strange. It is the strange practices of the Wisconsinites that they do this to themselves. Um, talk to me about, you know, I, you know, observing this from the outside, I know what I see in, on social media and what I read. You live there. You talk to all the people on the ground, both those involved with candidacies and just regular voter folks. Tell me, break this election down for, for me and our listeners. Sure. Happy to. Well, the first thing to know is that the Wisconsin State Supreme Court has had a conservative majority for 15 years. And so uh, Scott Walker, during his time as governor, had this court to back him on the things that he did to Wisconsin. And that has continued more recently with rulings that, out of thin air, eliminated ballot drop boxes in the state and tore down COVID safeguards and Bit by bit, progressives have, have picked up a seat here, a seat there. Conservative, the conservative majority is 4-3. And one of the longtime conservative justices decided not to run for re-election, to retire. So it is that open seat that if Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protosiewicz were to win that, would, for the first time in 15 years, let progressives have a 4-3 control on the state Supreme Court and what everybody's talking about here it, it is a one-two punch of issues. It's those issues that drove record voter turnout for a February primary yesterday. That would be uh, abortion rights and democracy itself, because we have a, an 1849 abortion ban that came back on the books in Wisconsin as a result of the Dobbs decision. And, of course, from a democracy standpoint, Uh, The conservative justices have shown a willingness to tinker with the results of Wisconsin's elections. And so if Daniel Kelly were to be on that court after the 2024 presidential election, they could make a decision with ramifications for every American. I ask this oftentimes of people who are in a position to observe their electorate. Do the people, the regular people, not the people like you, not the people like me, Maybe not even people who care enough to listen to a radio station like this, but the regular people. Do you think they grasp what the issues really are and how important this election is? And the reason I ask is because I've I've observed over the years, election after election, where after the fact, when the truth of the matter came out, I've heard people say, well, I didn't know voting yes meant this. I I didn't know that. If I'd have known that, I would have voted no. And it just drives me crazy. So what is your sense of the electorate? Put very simply, it's different now. And it's different because of the Dobbs decision. From this point onward, until that national, constitutionally protected right is restored for women, this matter will be getting people voting who probably rarely, if ever, voted previously, and especially for the younger adults. The voter turnout on college campuses here in Wisconsin was through the roof yesterday in some places. And 
You know, it, it's not hyperbole to say that Gen Z is riding to the rescue of democracy and women's health care rights in Wisconsin. That Dobbs decision affected so many people, not just women, but their, their allies, their spouses and, and everybody else, that no matter what Dan Kelly is going to try to do, no matter what Dickie Line is going to try to do with his money to come up with various distractions, there are just too many people who understand what was stripped away last year. And again, they're paying attention more so than they ever have before. I read one estimate this morning that uh, the youth vote might have been up by as much as 30 percent. Do you have any any figures on that? I don't have exact figures, but I was reading through uh, a couple of the reports from a couple of campuses. And one of them, you know, did note about a 30 percent increase. And in another case in uh, Dunn County, uh, which is in Menominee, halfway between Eau Claire and the Twin Cities. That's home of the UW-Stout campus. And amazingly there, uh, Jennifer Dorrell, one of the conservative judges on the ballot, got a measly 8%, and, and Janet Protosawitz got 47%, which, again, looking at one county, you, you don't know this for sure, but I would I would bet a dollar on it that that just shows you amazing student turnout at UW-Stout in, in that instance. And... You know, that that trend is not going to go away in April. We are still going to be in the school year and college Dems and other groups, women's advocacy groups, what have you, are going to be as active as ever for these next five and a half weeks. I speculated when Roe v. Wade was overturned that that might be the motivation this youngest generation needed to really get politically active. You know, I'm I'm old, Pat. It was Vietnam. You know, I, when I was in high school, the guys I was in high school with were very nervously looking at their lottery numbers. And, you know, and it was it affected us. It affected the people we knew. It affected our lives. And we became uh, much more involved in politics and protests at at a very tender age. And yet uh, the the younger people since Vietnam, I don't think, have had an issue that affected their day to day lives the way that the Dobbs decision has. And my sense was always this could be the spark that lights a fire under this generation politically. Do you think that is an overstatement? No, I agree with it 100%. And I say this as somebody who, at age 58, is is extremely uh, unhappy with, you know, my generation's performance, which would be, you know, very early Gen X, late baby boomer. And unfortunately, um, I, I said that the generation prior to mine, so many of them didn't understand that Archie Bunker you know that was that was a gag he was he was not in keeping with how people were supposed to be behaving properly and yet people still voted that way for my generation it was you know michael p keaton on family ties uh you know it was it was uh, or alex keaton rather from michael j fox that they looked at this reagan era era of um you know greed is good and materialism and far too many of them became in my generation Roughly the same age, again, a Scott Walker, uh, a Paul Ryan, and a whole host of of others who did not have the challenges that this new generation of young adults is facing. They're not only facing their 
the women's health rights being ripped away. But they've seen for a generation their classmates gunned down across the country and Republicans unwilling to do anything except stand up for the mass shooters. And then they saw a pandemic come through and saw some of those same people essentially being pro-pandemic, not willing to lift a finger to save lives. So while it is mostly the Dobbs decision, Joan, there are these other factors as well that do motivate them in ways my generation was not challenged to become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, let's let's face it. You know, we always talk about how politics is local. Politics is personal. You know, politics is is how if if I see some decision affecting my daily life, if I like it, great. If I don't like it, man, I'm going to try to do something about it. And this Roe v. Wade decision, you know, I think um, Republicans should have been careful what they wished for, because I think this is really going to, despite the gerrymandering and despite all the voter fraud and despite the election denialism, I think this is going to be their undoing. By the way, real quick, you mentioned Paul Ryan. I know Paul Ryan grew up in Wisconsin since he has left Congress. I know he sits on the board, God help us, of Fox Cable. Has he is he doing anything in Wisconsin politically? Nothing politically, although I I did note that um, on a political calendar someplace, he is he is making a speaking appearance in one or two places uh, this week. And it didn't look to be in conjunction with anything. I don't know that he's got a book to hawk or anything like that. But prior to this week, no, he had he had essentially taken the, you know, the paycheck from, you know, the Murdoch family and and did did their bidding you know, now behind the scenes, the way that he did it so well while he was in the Capitol. Hmm. Interesting. Because, um, you know, it seems to me, and you've seen and met enough politicians, it is a it is a specific sort of person that is attracted to public life. Maybe now, I think, frankly, as we're getting more women involved in politics, I think, and I'm going to kind of generalize here, I think a lot of women who run for office are motivated by wanting to make the world a better place and their kids and stuff like that. But let's face it, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of of ego and having any kind of power is a real, it's, it's like a real rush. And I've been very surprised at the very low profile he has been keeping since he left public life. Do you have any indication that with these two speeches he's making this week, this might be about to change? Well, he certainly we did hear from him a couple of weeks back briefly when he he said, and I think he was just uh, asked someplace, um, you know, off the cuff. And he said that he would not support Donald Trump if he was the 2024 nominee. Paul Ryan always has a way of every so often trying to make himself sound like a moderate. And so. Uh, in fact, it is this, this evening that he will be speaking at the uh, UW-Madison LaFollette School of Public Policy. Uh, he is going to, it says here, share his policy insights gained and evidence-based solutions discovered from two decades in Congress and years as Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. So I think it's going to be a short speech because he, he will again <laughs> try to say some of the right things, but we saw the record. The record was not good for America's middle class by any stretch of the imagination. And then as soon as the Trump wing of the party decided that he was a rhino, 
I mean, he he packed up and, and couldn't get out of town fast enough. Well, you know what I would love that speech to be about? When Donald Trump was running, Paul Ryan was no Trump supporter. And everybody was under the impression that, you know, of the first 10 things Trump did when he was finally in office, getting rid of Paul Ryan was going to be somewhere in that top 10. And Paul Ryan goes to meet with Donald Trump and comes out of that meeting, not only not losing his job, but apparently being like one of Trump's buddies going forward. That, if we please get him to talk about what went on in that room and what did he have to say and what lies did he have to tell? Do you think he actually kissed Trump's hand? I, it wouldn't surprise me. No, no, because we're in, in this particular instance, Paul Ryan was extremely useful to Trump in the one thing that they had in common. Uh, it's it's a, an old expression that, that I joke about. The answer to all your questions is money. And in this case, it was the tax cut. And that was Paul Ryan's crown jewel was to cut corporate taxes, cut taxes for millionaires. He still believes in trickle down economics, which is a, a, a mirage. It's an urban myth, but he still believed in it, or at least told people he did. And Donald Trump, likes to not pay taxes, as we've continued to learn over the years. So as long as he knew that Paul Ryan was useful to him in getting taxes cut, then all of the other things, you know, melted away for a time while Paul Ryan could be of some use to him. Hmm. Well, maybe that's the secret sauce. There is that slogan. There's that slogan that says everything Trump touches dies. And mm-hmm. that certainly happened to to Paul Ryan's long term ambitions. If he thought he'd be speaker for a very long time, or or do maybe run for president or something, no, he he was useful to Trump, and then he was uh, disposed of. God, I'm talking to Pat Kreitlow from the Up North News. We're talking all things Wisconsin. We're going to continue this discussion and take calls right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Pat Kreitlow from Up North News. We are talking about the big, big, big Supreme Court election that took place in Wisconsin yesterday that is sending uh, Janet Protasewicz and Daniel Kelly to a two-person race that's going to be decided on April 4th, two candidates who couldn't be more different. We were talking about the huge uptick in young voters, and we are both speculating that it had a lot to do with the motivation they felt when they realized that um, if they don't get out and vote and make their voices heard, they might lose more rights than they've already lost. Um, let's go to the phone lines, Pat. Uh, Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington, to join our conversation. Paul, you're on with me and Pat Kreitlow. All right. Uh, hi, John. Hello, Pat. Uh, so I, I think the Dobbs decision, in the Dobbs decision, that the Republicans, you know, became the dog that caught the bus, and now they got a mouthful of muffler, and they're getting their heads run over in, you know, by the rear wheels in the states. And I, I have wondered if this would, this would, uh, 
you know, dared to wonder that this would not be the case. Um, you know, a lot of us progressives, we kind of want this homogeneous utopia in America, but there's enough, you know, nuts on the other side. I mean, the, the MAGA crowd is, they've been there and they just, you know, were in the shadows, uh, which is, or their holes or the holes of their shadows, whatever they're, which is where they can go back to if you ask me. But, uh, as Donald Trump is, you know, parading around and going to Ohio to talk about, by the way, whose bright idea was it to light it all on fire? <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Yeah, let's make it worse. I know, let's light it. Um, yeah, well, that's Ohio. You see, where Republicans, you see, when, when Democrats fight it out on the state level, yeah, it's a continuous fight, but they, they are, they have always just, they've never wanted to solve a problem. Now it's really interesting. You hear Republicans talking about, well, can't we come to find, you know, some middle ground, got to be some middle ground here on this abortion thing. You know what? They're getting their asses kicked, sorry. Um, but now they want middle ground suddenly. I've never heard Republicans when they are in the majority, especially when they have a, you know, a trifecta, ever talk about middle ground with anybody. But yeah, and I think my take is that it is just talk because you also see yeah. these efforts to um, at the federal level to ban abortion. You know, you see what's going on in Texas with a judge who is trying to figure out a way to make uh, the medications used for a medication abortion to try to say the FDA didn't know what they were doing when they approved these, even though they've been approved for decades yeah, I don't know. Um, Pat, do you think there are Republicans searching for a middle ground or maybe they just like to talk about searching for a middle ground? Oh, it's it's always been all talk and it, it enabling them to then go extreme. I mean, just look at what Republicans who managed to win a narrow majority in the House of Representatives after spending 2022 saying we're on your side, middle class. Look at the first few things that they've done, which would add $3 trillion to the deficit, even as they're promoting cutting food assistance uh, you know, for, for people that are on Social Security or on SNAP benefits, and opposing things like making sure kids don't go hungry when they go to school at lunchtime. So they stand for their most extreme economic and social agenda whenever possible. And to get there, that gives me a nice transition to talk about what's going to come up in this state Supreme Court campaign. And it is not going to be abortion and gerrymandering. You know, you're not going to hear those things from from Dan Kelly. You're going to hear about welfare cheats because the Wisconsin legislature run by Republicans last month decided to put a ballot question up On April, on that same day, the ballot question says, should able-bodied childless adults be required to work for their welfare benefits? But here's the thing. That's already the law. And they know that. They're just looking to gin up turnout for Dan Kelly or Jennifer Doro, if she'd have come through the primary, looking to gin that up. And so you're going to see all that special interest money talking about, you know, all those people on welfare who are cheating you blind, not the billionaires who are getting, you know, the, the, the major tax breaks. It's those kinds of distractions that help them win. Unbelievable. Thank you. Thank you for the call, uh, Paul. You know, um, one of the things that I want to talk to you about, Pat, 
is money in this race. I saw, where was this? I don't know where I saw this. Um, an article on uh, the money that went, in, oh, it was a substack, just one of the substacks I read. Um, the money that went into this race, particularly from the Illinois Uline family, uh, there's a graph here that shows that in the year 2009 to 2010, uh, the Ulines gave like, uh, like almost $320,000 to candidates. In the year 2021 to 2022, the Ulines gave over $60 million to Republican candidates. They went from the 34th donor family to the first, the most. Nobody gave more than they did. Dan Kelly already admitted that in his primary race, the U-Lines have given him at least seven figures so at least a million dollars. And when asked, you know, whether they were going to give more or how much it was total, he was like, oh, gosh, I don't know. You know me. I don't keep track of that kind of stuff, which I thought was incredibly disingenuous. But the fear is that with Uline money, even though this is a man who couldn't hold on to his Supreme Court seat when he tried to run for it last time around, that the Uline money might make a difference. If I lived in Wisconsin and, or if I lived in Illinois and there was some family in Ohio that was funding a candidate to this degree, I, I would not be comfortable with that. I'd be like, you know, leave us alone. We're our state. We'll figure this out. It sort of feels like somebody who's really wealthy just putting their thumb on the scale. Does the average voter care about Uline money? And what effect will Uline money have as it unfolds in the next five and a half, six weeks? Uh, Not many people know about them, uh, you know, about uh, Dick and Liz and, and, you know, how they are basically the the Koch brothers of Wisconsin and and actually dwarf them. And, And fewer people, unless they're, you know, reading us over, you know, at Up North News, uh, fewer people understand that the only reason Ron Johnson won re-election was <laughs> that the Uline money dragged him across the finish line with tens of millions of dollars in garbage, racist ads attacking <laughs> Mandela Barnes. And, and especially, as I yeah. said, oh, we're getting close to breaking for news. But as I said earlier, a lot of times the problem is these attack ads come at the last minute and they do damage. But the person who is being unfairly smeared doesn't have the time to get the rebuttal out. I'm going to talk to you more about this. We have to take a break for news. Pat Kreitlow from Up North News. We are talking about Wisconsin politics and Illinois money in Wisconsin politics. We'll talk more right after this. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. 
I am joined by Pat Kreitlow from Up North News, where you get all the news of Wisconsin. We are talking about the election that took place yesterday, where four people wanted to be in the runoff April 4th to be the person to fill the Wisconsin Supreme Court seat that will determine whether the Supreme Court has a conservative or a liberal majority. We have two people that uh, made it, Janet Protasiewicz and Daniel Kelly. One of They couldn't be more different. One is uh, very Democratic. The other is not only a Republican and conservative, but far, far right, to the point where he has gotten so far well over a million dollars from the Uline family. Who are the Uline family? Well, they made their money. They continue to make their money in boxes. Uh, they're based in Illinois. I believe the family residence is Lake Forest, and they are the number one Republican donor. As one source put it, uh, the Ulines have favored election deniers who campaign on the claim that Trump won, or they give money to groups that spread those lies. According to the Brennan Center, the Ulines spent almost $63 million to election-denying candidates and super PACs that support them. This is a family that has funded the John Birch Society, George Wallace, the original American first group. They are just about as far right as they can. And here's the really interesting part of that article. The U-Lines have poured tens of millions of dollars into state court races guessing, probably correctly, that the return on investment is higher relative to spending on other races. So we have every indication that the Uline family is going to open up the purse strings for Daniel Kelly in this five and a half, six weeks we have left till the final election. Pat, you were just about ready to start talking about uh, that when I cut you off so we could go to news at the top of the hour. Please go ahead. Yeah, I, I totally understand. And, and what I wanted to get to with uh, with the E-Lines is not just that this is political, not just philosophical, but again, it comes back to the money and the massive sweetheart tax break that Ron Johnson got passed in that 2017 tax cut bill that we were talking about a little bit earlier. As a result, and this is in a ProPublica report that did a masterful job of explaining this, the uh, the E-Lines had reported income in 2018 of more than $700 million. Their income was $700 million, but they were able to slash their taxes with a $118 million deduction generated by the tax break that Ron Johnson gave them. So for them to put, even if they were to put $12 million into politics, that's just 10% of the money they saved on taxes, money that you and I had to make up the difference. And so they not only helped Ron Johnson, who saved them all that money, but now they've got plenty of money to help win state Supreme Court races like this one here in Wisconsin. You know, Pat, many years ago, um, when I was working at a television station with Bob Surratt, I was involved in contract negotiations. And I remember talking with Bob 
who always felt that there were things more important than simply your salary. And this is this comment is going to show you how long ago this was. He looked at me and he said, you know, how many VCRs can you buy? <laughs> Which I thought was a, a kind of an interesting observation. But, you know, why is it with the super rich who almost in some cases literally have more money than they could possibly spend in their lifetimes seem to be the ones most panicked about paying a little bit more in taxes. You know, if there's a tax increase, you know, it could end up for you and me and a lot of people, it could end up being a big portion of our income. But when you're Jeff Bezos... You know, it's a it's a freaking drop in the bucket. Jeff Bezos, who uh, just bought a yacht uh, to carry the stuff for his big yacht. I mean, come on, Pat. <laughs> it, it's really something. And I, I, I will say for those folks who may not have uh, caught earlier that, uh, you know, in a, in a previous life, I was uh, in the Wisconsin legislature and ran for Congress. And I bring that up to talk about one of my biggest donors. It was a farmer, a farmer who described himself as an FDR Democrat and and says something that you just don't hear much anymore. He says, I love to pay taxes. I pay a lot of taxes. It means I've been successful. It means that I, who started out with nothing and now can do all of this, can take care of my tax bill. I can take care of my family. I can take care of my community. It's a much better outlook than those who want to not pay their taxes. And then society should depend on their philanthropic generosity in order for us to have Mm -hmm. schools and other nice things. Yeah. Uh, There's um, um, a political observer, Anand Jirahadis, who I follow. And he came to my attention years ago because he went, he was invited to speak at Davos, which is, of course, where the ultra wealthy and the ultra powerful meet to, I don't know, pat each other on the back, whatever. And he got a lot of coverage because he looked out at the audience as he made his speech and he was like, you know, I don't want to hear about your philanthropy. I don't want to hear about your philanthropy because it's self-serving and it's egotistical. You want to make the world a better place? Don't endow a library. Go back to your company and raise the wages of your workers. Increase their health care coverage. That's making the world a better place. Not sticking your name on a museum or a library. That's just self-serving ego. And he said this to their face. And I was like, whoa, that's a guy I think I want to follow going forward and see what he has to say. But, but it's, it's true. You know, I get so, oh, you know, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, Mackenzie, she's so great because she's giving all this money here or there. You know what, Mackenzie? How about you start a business and cover all the health care costs of your workers and go to a, a, a neighborhood or several neighborhoods or all the neighborhoods that are that are underserved and need this kind of help desperately. Do that, not just, oh, I'm going to write a check to this organization and I'm writing a check to this organization. Aren't I wonderful? I am just the best. No, that's not how you make the world a better place. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did I go off on a little rant there, Pat? I apologize. Yeah. 
But you also help help me make the point of why in yesterday's election there were, again, four candidates. There were two progressives. There were two conservatives all on the ballot together. And when you combine the vote totals of the progressives, Milwaukee Judge Janet Protosiewicz and Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell, they got 54 percent of the vote compared to 46 percent for the two conservative candidates. Now, that that's no guarantee that you're going to see that kind of an eight-point spread in April. But the fact that you, you did see that kind of turnout is that there are so many people who have feelings very similar to yours that say we have been getting a raw deal for way too long and that anybody who wants to bring about any reform in capitalism, anybody who wants to try to make capitalism work better, work more as intended, they are immediately accused of being a socialist. Mm-hmm. When they do that, it's, it's like the, the old movie quote, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. You know, <laughs> trying to make capitalism work better is, you know, it, it is good for America. It's good for the economy. It's good for, you know, every mom and pop business. But when the folks in power are only looking out for the biggest businesses and the biggest checkbooks, you're going to have these, you're going to have this perversion of capitalism that leaves too many people dependent upon the kindness of, you know, the the billionaire next door. I remember that what you just said just recently, Bernie Sanders was on a news show and he was talking about how, like, I think it's in Finland, he used as an example that there's all education, even higher education is free. Healthcare is free. And the anchor was like, yes, but they pay a 55% tax rate. But the problem is when you really analyze, okay, 55% tax rate, what does the figure out what that dollar figure is? You add up f- completely free healthcare and completely free higher education. You add up the nine months of parental leave, paid parental leave that you get when you have a baby or adopt a baby. When you add up all the things that they get, it adds up if we were going to be, do it in this country to paying like 75% in taxes. I mean, the, the, when you actually look at the costs, involved of what we are paying for the same things that they, you know, they pay more taxes than we do. Absolutely. But the benefit they get far exceeds what they pay in. And um, that always drives me crazy. You know, well, well, you know, they pay a lot more in taxes. Well, you know, yeah, but it's still, you know, I mean, I had cancer. I don't know anybody Unless you have maybe just skin cancer taken off your nose, if you have a serious cancer, it is a quarter million dollars between the surgeries and the drugs and the chemo and the palliative stuff. I mean, I had insurance. I had insurance and my medical deductions for the year I had cancer, which means the money I spent out of pocket $66,000 with insurance. That was what I was paying. And I was eligible at that time. I wasn't working. <coughs> and um, so I was eligible for a lot of these programs that discounted the price of my drugs. I wasn't even paying full price for my drugs. And it's still I had to I had to do that amount of money out of pocket. Um, it's just it's just insane. Um 
Let's take a break. We have a couple of callers who want to join our conversation, Pat. We'll get to that right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Hi, this is Patty Vasquez. I am honored to have hosted Driving It Home for the last year. But it seems like we never have enough time to talk. And since I've been doing the traffic reports, I realize how long it actually takes to drive it home. So as we head into the holiday season, I want to spend more time with you. And we've decided to add an hour to the show every day. Thanks to my sponsors, Kids Above All, European and U.S. Auto Body, and Monaco Brewing for making this all possible. And, of course, my WCPT family. And I couldn't do this without you. So tune in every day, 5 to 7 p.m., Monday through Friday. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Pratt Kreitlow from the Up North News, where you go in Wisconsin to get all of the political news, uh, all the news about Wisconsin that you need to know. We have a large number of callers. Let's see if we can get everybody in here. Uh, let's go to Derek, who is calling in from South Elgin. Hey, Derek, you're on with me and Pat Kreitlow. Hi, Joan. Hi, Pat. Thank you for taking my call. Um, this is sure. a very interesting conversation, and it brings me back to, um, uh, a, to 2010 Supreme Court case of Citizens United. And in that case, the judges ruled that corporations are people and money is speech. Currently, uh, Representative Jamal uh, Pramila Jayapal is the lead sponsor of We the People Amendment, and presently she has 94 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. Unfortunately, only four from Illinois, so we're trying to work on getting more of our elected leaders in the House to get on board. But it, it, what this would do is to, uh, if we get enough sponsorship and pass forward this uh, We the People Amendment, it will override the disastrous 2010 Citizens United. Um, the dam broke in that year, and we are paying the price in regards to our democracy right now because you and I and anybody listening pretty much cannot afford to buy or make a million dollars donations to a campaign or um, a politician, and it's just destroying our democracy. Uh, no, no doubt about that, Derek. I, I appreciate the point. And, and while we've been picking on the, you know, the Uline family, it's worth noting that, you know, Wisconsin Republicans have had another benefactor in the billionaire class. You have Diana Hendricks from ABC Supply in Beloit, who, by the way, for that Ron Johnson tax break, got a deduction that saved her in one year, $36 million. Again, $36 million you and I had to make up in order not to have a reduction in services. So when you let billionaires pour that much in, to thank politicians for looking out for them, small wonder our campaigns are so expensive and, and results get uh, turned around from what most people would want if they were given an honest assessment of the issues. Thanks for the call, Derek. I appreciate it. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hello, Dave. It's Pat Kreitlow and me. Go ahead. Hey, hey, Joan. Hey, Pat. Uh, before I get into it, tell you, didn't uh, Bezos also literally have to have a bridge get moved so he could get his yacht out? I think it was overseas, if I recall right. 
They, they were going to, and then the, fortunately, sanity prevailed, and they said, no, we're not moving this bridge for your yacht. So hopefully we, we've had a happy ending to that one. Okay, um, but let's uh, talk about uh, going back to Wisconsin again. Uh, did either you read or hear the story where uh, Kyle Rittenhouse has uh, been taking the Christian crowdfunding platform, goes give send me or give send go whatever, because he's uh, he's drowning in the legal bills now. They're starting to pile up. That uh, the family of that Anthony Huber, one of them that got killed, is. Uh, hooked up also with the this uh, Gage Gross Cruz that they're both uh, suing him. Like in Gross, in uh, Huber's family, you know, they're suing for wrongful death, and then this Gross Cruz is suing, uh, accusing him, written out of a notion of distress, humiliation, loss of enjoyment of life, and other pain and suffering and stuff. And uh, he's been leaning a lot on the conservatives for help, but... Uh, Right now, he's only raised about a quarter of the, the half a million that he needs right now. Well, Dave, let's not, you know, to bring it back to the court race, let's let's remember that every every court election or every presidential election that determines who's on the U.S. Supreme Court, each time it's a referendum on how the law is interpreted. And Kyle Rittenhouse was able to get off because of an interpretation of the law that that made it impossible virtually to, to to say that, that it was anything but self defense, even though he you know essentially went there to 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 go hunting for people under the guise of protecting property, and right. it's only going to be through elections and and you know judicial elections included that we we may get you know a less perverse interpretation of the Second Amendment someday. Right, and that judge almost seemed to be uh, more uh, in favor of him you know uh, during that trial. You know, kind of scolding the the prosecutors and stuff like that. And uh, I thought he was going to invite uh, Rittenhouse over for a barbecue or something after the thing was done, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. But anywho, I just thought I find that of interest, you know, with the, his name is uh, bubbling up to the top again. So. Sounds sure. good. Yeah, that's a name that I'm afraid we're not going to escape anytime soon. Um, no. Let's go... Back to the phone lines here. Uh, Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Steve, you're on with me and Pat Kreitlow. Go ahead. Yes, I want to make a couple of points. One, with all due respect to Dave, uh, I, I don't blame the judge for having to follow the existing law in a given state. Uh, that judge wasn't favorable towards Kyle Rittenhouse. He was favorable towards the law. And as your guest has pointed out, the law, unfortunately, in Wisconsin was written in such a way as to, uh, as to give us the only outcome that was going to happen. So it, we need to stop blaming judges for what the legislature has put into place. Um, that's point one. And two, um, you're absolutely right with regard to talking about the pervasive influence of money in terms of our politics. You know, there's no other place, when you look at the research, where you can put your money, if you're wealthy enough, uh, that you get the kind of return that you, that you can have in, in, relative to uh, returns on your money as you do when investing in political uh, activities. In other words, if you put your money into lobbying, if you give to the campaigns, there's no better return on your money. You can hire investment banks. You can put your money. Uh, you can hire great accounting firms to watch over your money. Nowhere else are you going to get back as much money as, as you get by simply giving people who make policy money because they're, they're the people who can generate the most amount for you in terms of return on your money, allowing you to keep more of it and allowing you to make more of it. And without the hindrance of things like regulation, having to pay people's 
health care costs and having to pay decent wages and these sorts of things. And, and I'm glad that you brought up that, that whole uh, scenario in which, you know, you, you had people who do, will take the rich to task in these forums. And their response is always, well, you know what, uh, I, I own a piece of Amazon, but I don't own all of it. And therefore, I can't go, uh, I can't unilaterally make the decision to pay my employees more because other shareholders, uh, that, that has to be approved by the entire company. Um, uh, but they, they won't tell you that, by the way, they have a tremendous amount of influence over the shareholders because they are the majority of, of the stakeholders in that company. So there's always some reason as to why they can't do what they do, but they just want to be the Carnegie's and the Mellons and the Rockefellers, you know, and they want to give their money back to society on their terms rather than uh, than giving it back on our terms and that's why you that's why they're called that's why they were referred to as the robber barons in the 19th century the people of the 19th century exactly. didn't love those people today we love the fact that you know that there's things like the carnegie center the rockefeller center and the carnegie institute and all these other places that seem to donate money to good causes yeah people didn't love them in their day for a reason hmm. that's right thanks steve thank you very much for that steve uh, Pat, we are running out of time here. Any thoughts that you want to make sure we leave with the audience before we wrap this up? Any any things that we should be paying attention to for uh, this coming April 4th? Well, I think, uh, again, it's, it, while it's up here in Wisconsin, it, it is a nationally watched race. It is mm-hmm. not just national attention, but but funds and so, frankly, for those folks who you know are looking to be involved in something, this is probably one of those races that they they should consider. Um, whether it's you know through uh, monitoring or through giving something to it, again, because the stakes of this race do have national consequences, and so we'll keep following it. You know, you can catch us on social media. Just search for Up North News WI WI for Wisconsin. And we'll we'll keep giving updates on how people can see the real impact of this race. Excellent. Thank you, Pat. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you for being here, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. We are going to take a break. We're going to talk aldermanic politics after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There are local races that are going to be decided this coming Tuesday, February 28th. A lot of the aldermanic seats in the city of Chicago are going to be decided on February 28th. One of those uh, crowded races is for the 45th Ward Currently, uh, Jim Gardner is the alderman for the 45th Ward. He is facing a number of challengers, among them Megan Mathias. Megan joins us now to uh, talk about her candidacy and the 45th Ward. Megan, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Joan. Thank you for having me. 
Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm from a small town in Michigan, like dirt road size small town. Um, first generation college student. My mom was a postal carrier. My dad was a crane operator. My family is really from Tennessee coal miners who moved to Flint to work in the auto manufacturing plant. Huh. And so, uh, tell me what you've been doing with yourself uh, as an adult. Yes. So uh, I came to Chicago in 2000 for law school. I practiced downtown for many years as an attorney. And then in 2018, I started my firm here in the ward. Uh, I also served for many years on boards like the YWCA and Lifespan, working on issues of domestic violence and sexual violence. And um, I'm also the local school council chair for Belding Elementary. Huh. And you've gotten some interesting support in your race to be the next older person. Talk about that. Uh, well, I started really early. Um, I started uh, almost next month will be two years ago. Um, but I started with eight months of, of listening and community roundtables and um, interviews with people and community groups to really build out policy and process and really make sure that this is, is a, was a good fit. Um, and through that, I think I've built a different coalition. Now, I wasn't, you know, there's a lot of divisiveness in the ward that I wasn't a part of because my spouse was very sick with cancer in 2018 Ugh. and he passed away in 2019. Um, and we I'm so children, sorry. And so thank you very much. Um and like I said, I have three kiddos, so I was really, the neighbors are really supportive of me, and I'm very active in the community generally, so um, I got very close with the community during that process, and so I wasn't really part of some of this historic divisiveness, which I think has served me well in this process because I can build a different kind of a coalition. So I've worked really hard. I've gotten a lot of recent endorsements, um, some of which unexpected, <laughs> um, and I think it just reflects part of the work I've put in for two years. What endorsement that you got was unexpected? Um, uh, you know, when you first start, you really don't know. You really don't know who is going to help you, really. So I got the Chicago Tribune recently. I got the Chicago Land Chamber of Commerce. Uh, um, you know, I just a lot of different, an elected official, Congressman Mike Quigley uh, endorsed me. I got Local 150, so Equality Illinois, so a lot of those have been really uh, Northside DFA. So, um, when they endorsed really you, some of those groups, the Tribune, Chicagoland Chamber of Commerce, Mike Quigley, what were some of the reasons that they gave for endorsing you? What did they like about you? Well, I think uh, the Tribune mentioned a few parts of the policy that I've built out that I think um, makes me stand out as a candidate including the business corridor plan I put together. Um, of course, the 45th Ward suffers from a lot of vacancy and turnover in small business. Um, and uh, I started my firm inside a business incubator, and I built out a business corridor plan, which includes bringing a small business development center to the northwest side. We're the only part of the city that doesn't have one. It, it's really, it's mech and the mechanism is just really to help businesses get funding and understand programs, uh, get access to resources to invest in their own business, buy their buildings, for example, or rehab them, 
and really allow businesses to stay here and thrive. And that's been a really a long-term, long-standing problem here. Um, also, I think my kind of a collaborative approach on really difficult topics like public safety has been um, really well received, and and a number of people have pointed that out. When you say collaborative, who is it you have been, who have you been working with, what people or what groups to come up with a public safety plan? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, like I said at the beginning, I spent hundreds of hours interviewing people, including police officers and community groups, and trying to understand different perspectives and really dig in um, and, and understand solutions. So one of the ideas I've talked about is using community service officers. Um, there's, they could be focused on things like parking and traffic and events, things that don't need like a true police force um, mm-hmm. and focus the police force on other things like violent crime. Uh, and I think that's been a concept that it's used other places. It's not like I created it, but I think people are kind of hungry for a solution. Um, and that's one of the things that I think has been well received. Tell me about Alderman Jim Gardner and why you weren't just simply satisfied to let him continue on in that seat. Why you felt you or someone like you needed to replace him. Um, I talk a lot about leadership on the doors and when I'm out talking to neighbors. It's leadership and it's temperament and it's... um, understanding when you are in a position, a leadership position, that it matters how you approach things um, and how you treat people. And I think people are really sick of the divisiveness uh, and are definitely have noticed a pattern uh, of behavior from this alderman that in so many different ways, his colleagues, his constituents, um, you know, people he should be working with to get things done for the, for the neighborhood um, are reporting the same kind of treatment. So those that I just call it leadership <laughs> um, and temperament. And I think uh, I've demonstrated that uh, over the span of you know 23 years of working uh, in, in fairly contentious circumstances as a litigator, and also when you work in domestic violence, you go up against some bullies here and there, and um, you know you you you. It matters how you approach that part of the job as well, and I think that's um, a job skill I've been developing for a long time, and I think it'll serve me well on the council and, uh, you know, allows me to be able to work with other people while also setting a standard that people know that certain kind of behavior is not going to be acceptable, at least when I'm in charge. You talked about your collaborative approach to public safety. What are one or two either laws or ordinances or policies that you would like to see and that you would support as the older person to make Chicago a safer place? Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to focus on root causes. Um, It's clear that when we don't invest in communities, we all suffer. And I think that you can't have this discussion without thinking about investing in root causes. I also, I also think that we need to pay attention about how, what we're asking police to do. I don't think it's fair to cancel, late cancel days off and, 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 and then also expect 
we do expect perfection, really, right? It's a very important job. And I say even lawyers, um, we have a whole organization for when people, colleagues are struggling with the stress of the job, and that organization steps in and helps you in a confidential way um, to get through whatever that, you know, whatever the problem is that you're addressing or, or that you're if the challenge you're up against. And I don't know that we're, I don't think we're doing that for police officers. I think it's um, seems like basic common sense to um, provide robust mental health services to officers um, under the stress of their kind of job. I don't think it's responsible for us to not do that. Uh, and I think giving them a regular work schedule seems like a really fair uh, policy to implement and, and to help us move to, towards things that can rebuild trust between the police and the communities that they serve. Along those lines, are you familiar with uh, Sophia King's idea, which apparently in her ward um, have been implemented, this idea of instead of a regular week that cops work four days on, maybe slightly longer shifts, four days on, three days off, uh, to give people the kind of mental and physical break they need from such a stressful job? And frankly, to just keep people just a little bit happier. Are you familiar with her, with what's going on in her ward and uh, her idea of how to implement that across the city? I did listen to her on your show the other day, um, and I thought her answers were really eloquent on this topic. Um, I think it's a good idea to think about that, as as for everyone, right, because Coming out of this pandemic, I think we're all looking at how people work in a different way um, because our mental health, it's a, it's a crisis among all of us. And I think um, making changes like that make a lot of sense. So, yes, I think she had a great idea. She's pretty impressive in a, in a lot of ways. It doesn't look, according to the polling or the fundraising, like she is going to end up as one of the two candidates in the runoff. But she is certainly somebody who I think has a lot to offer. And I do not believe, even if she doesn't make it into the mayoral runoff, I don't think we've heard the last of her. Um, we are going to take a break. I'm talking with Megan Mathias, who is going to be on your ballot if you live in the 45th Ward in Chicago. She's running to replace Jim Gardner as the older person. We're going to be right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by candidate Megan Mathias. She is going to be on the ballot this February 28th. She's running to be the next older person for Chicago's 45th Ward. It's a Northwest Ward. Jim Gardner uh, currently is the older person. He defeated John Arena uh, just a short time ago, but he is facing several uh, challengers. We talked a little bit, uh, Megan, about public safety, but one of the acknowledged needs in the city of Chicago especially for uh, some of the neighborhoods outside of the downtown area, the need for mental health services. There used to be community clinics. Those were closed in a cost-saving measure. Everybody agrees that mental health services need to return to the neighborhoods, but there's a real 
policy difference on how that should happen. Um, I've talked to candidates who say that, well, the best way to do it isn't to actually reopen those clinics, but the best way to provide these extra services is to simply funnel more money into community groups that are already doing mental health services as a part of their mission rather than, you know, reopening these um, physical mental health clinics. How do you weigh in on that issue? Uh, I tend to think about new solutions, and I don't um, – so sort of both is my answer, that I think um, there's a short-term need, and I think we have to jump on that because I know people that have been waiting for months, and this isn't the kind of service you should wait for months uh, to obtain. Um, so I think you should both invest in groups that are already doing this work but also find ways to expand um, I'd like to look at things in a more innovative way. Are there ways we can offer online therapy, for example, and things like that in a more cost-effective manner and make it more available to other people? Um, and what does that look like? So uh, there's a number of things that, that is part of my business corridor development plan um, that uh, I include include this one issue, um, the a modern day community center, which in, you can have programs for kids and art programs and teach kids digital education and maybe meet your elected officials. Um, and is there a way we can incorporate um, the small business development center inside there, but also um, offering services that may be virtual for people who can't don't have that access at home. Um, and so those are the things I've thought about in terms of how we can expand um, mental health services to everyone. Well, let's talk about other aspects of your business corridor development plan. It sounds like it is uh, all-encompassing. Tell us about it. Um, everybody is hungry here for community voice. And I, it's unfair when you switch between aldermen. You sometimes have it and sometimes you don't. Um, one way to secure that would be have a piece of property identified and, and put into a community trust. So the community forever has this, the, the community voice is cemented for them. And they control it and they can, you know, implement the vision on it. And um, I think that would be really important to help people stay invested in the success of the business corridors. Um, this ward is made up of essentially a number of corridors connect, business corridors connected, most of which are not thriving. I'll just say that. Um, and this both serves as, as helping with community voice and keeping people invested in that process, but then also can serve as a place for us to come together. You know, we don't, we don't have ward nights or really anything that brings us together via the, the alderman's office. We have other community events, of course. Um, I think that would go a long way to help, uh, you know, bring people together on, on issues and also give people a voice in the process. Can we have, you know, uh, not just ward nights, but surveys and people going door to door and really getting real input when decisions need to be made. And I think the concept of approaching things like that. Uh, it's much different than the incumbent and something that at least the 45th war, I think, is really hungry for. And would you I know that um, every older person gets some money for discretionary spending. How would you underwrite those efforts with your discretionary spending or is there money available from uh, some other account? 
So the Small Business Development Center is actually not paid for by city funds. Uh, it can be paid for from federal funds and other funds. Um, and um, it's really a staffing. It's, it would start with just one person, uh, and their job is to bring programs uh, and find funding for our businesses locally. Um, so that's one piece. And there's, there's um, putting the property in community trust. You know, if we can identify a piece of property that's underutilized, and there's plenty of those here, um, um, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to cost a lot of money. The different programs, if you bring different stakeholders in, um, can we get free Wi-Fi from Comcast or some big stakeholder? I would love to f- figure that out. Um, so the different parts of the programs would have different kinds of funding. One of the things you talked about is communication. That has been one of the complaints against the current alderman, Jim Gardner. You know, his office argues that he has town halls, but but he has these telephone town halls that are very restricted. Not everybody is able to participate. It's like it's like a specially chosen audience that comes together in a very controlled way for a very set amount of time. And that's been one of the concerns. How would you do things differently? Um, I think community voice is is really um, a major issue in our ward. And so I, I agree that the town halls, those aren't town halls. They're basically Zoom calls and nobody can get in. Uh, I've been to community meetings with where developers have to have a meeting, uh, a mandated community meeting before they move forward with proposals, and, and Alderman Gardner was not even there. Um, I think we should have um, much more opportunity for people to come together and work on shared concerns, and that can look like a lot of different things. And I, I, it would be great to have this modern-day community center idea with an experience. People want to come there and and see each other and work on issues and have different programs, uh, but also are there more innovative ways to get input? Um, how are we reaching out to our neighbors? Just signing up for this for this newsletter is not going to work for a significant portion of the, the neighborhood. So I think we should utilize all methods and find ways to really take in information and provide information back in a very robust way. So at a minimum, word nights, but much more than that. Which of the city hall caucuses do you see yourself joining when you are elected? I think city city council is going to look, look much, much different after this election with all these new offices and um, um, so many people leaving. So I'm not sure what the caucuses will look like. And I think initially, I don't think a caucus makes any sense. I think we need to start building on common concerns. And I'm not sure that, that as they're operating right now, um, that makes a lot of sense initially. So I personally would like to be someone who has a command of the budget uh, and understand that and um, find colleagues who, who want to look at that issue and, and really understand it. I've studied it already, and people tell me that's not what I should be doing. I should be knocking doors, not trying to understand the budget. <laughs> but that's why I started early. I can do both. Um, so there's just so many issues to work on. I'm not sure that forming a caucus is a, a, an initial priority. But you must admit that when you uh, work with like-minded colleagues uh, who want to achieve a goal, having having a caucus creates 
a voting block. It essentially creates a power base. You know, our concerns are not to be taken lightly because we are more likely to vote with one another than we are to to vote separately. I mean, there is a sort of a power element to having caucuses that exist, don't you think? That's true. I think that's true. And it can work in in a lot of ways and work on has positive uh, aspects. But I also think right now, uh, at least how it's operating at the moment, the way um, how we're coming out of this um, incumbency with someone that's not uh, worked well with other people. And I would like to establish a brand new relationship with city council members and be able to really get things done. Um, Sorry, I think part of that means you have to shed what people, what they envision the 45th Ward to be at the moment. So I think I need, I have a little work to do there to bring new leadership and then work on um, forming caucuses. Well, in addition to new council members, there is, um, there's a pretty good shot. You might also be working with a new mayor. Uh, Who's, uh, you got any favorites in the race? I have no favorites, and um, and like you, it seems like every day there's a different uh, poll out. Not that we, uh, I don't put a ton of faith in the polls, though. Uh, so, but um, yeah, I do not have a favorite. Okay, very diplomatically said. <laughs> if you had to put a label on yourself, would you call yourself a moderate? A conservative, a progressive, a liberal. How do you describe, if you had to describe your politics in one word, as unfair as I know that is, what would that word be, Megan? Innovative. Ah. I have approached this in such a different way. Um, you know, I think, I don't know, four or five times as long I've been a candidate than anybody else in the race. Um and I put together a different coalition because I will sit down and talk to anybody. Um, not really a coalition as in we're all working towards the same thing, but people who feel heard are able to work together on shared concerns. And so I think just the approach is innovative and how I uh, anticipate leading is innovative. If people would like more information about your candidacy, there is a website, Megan for 45thward.com, M-E-G-A-N-F-O-R-4-5-T-H-Ward.com. Megan, I think it's going to be a fascinating election night. Where are you going to be? We're going to be at La Pena on Milwaukee Avenue, and everyone is welcome. Yay, I love it. I love it when you uh, have an election celebration at some place where there's food and beverage. Those are my favorite kind of election nights, Megan. Food, beverage, and music, so it'll be fun. Oh, music, too. Well, there's a bonus. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good luck this coming Tuesday, and um, maybe we will be talking to you a little bit later as the older person for the 45th Ward. Sounds great, and thank you so much for having me. I am, I am really grateful to be on, on your show. With well, we're, well, in my own mind, maybe. Thank you for that, <laughs> Megan. Um, we are going to take a break. We're going to be back with um, Decide, Power to Decide. It's a really interesting group, and uh, we're going to talk to them right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820.
This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. Anybody who listens to this radio station is no stranger to the fact uh, that we are living in a world where our daughters... Our wives, our friends have fewer rights than they did a few years ago. They have lost the right to bodily autonomy when the Supreme Court struck down its Roe v. Wade decision. States uh, are now enacting egregious laws to restrict what a woman, what a woman can decide on for herself. It is about control. It is ugly. It is awful. And something has to change. There is a group called Power to Decide. It's a nonprofit. It's nonpartisan. And its only mission is to provide sexual and reproductive well-being to people, particularly women. It is an organization whose work is hugely important. We are joined now by Power to Decide's Director of Public Policy. Tara Mancini is here. Tara, thank you so much for being a part of our broadcast today. Thank you, Joan. Thank you for having me. Now, if I understand your position, you not only work with just regular folks, um, the no- regular people, but you also work with lawmakers and policymakers. Talk to me about everything you do with both of those groups. Sure. So, you know, as as you said, our mission is to advance sexual and reproductive well-being for all. And we accomplish this by doing a few different things, providing trusted information, which I know that your listeners are um, big on, and that's what you do on your channel expanding access to quality services and catalyzing culture change. One way that catalyzing culture change is working with media. Um, and that's not part of my job uh, usually or too often, but then also expanding access to quality services. That is part of our, uh, you know, public policy working to advocate with um, the federal government usually uh, for Policies just expand access to reproductive health care. And in terms of providing trusted information, that is more in terms of how we work with consumers, with regular folks in, in making sure that they know what sexual and reproductive health care is available to them where they live, dispelling myths, um, just making sure that everyone has access to the information that they can use to advocate for themselves and, you know, pursue the future that they want. Abortion is one part of this, certainly. And since the Roe v. Wade decision was struck down, the country seems to be, Tara, a crazy quilt of laws and rules and what you can do and what you can't do and what you can say and what you can't say. How do you even keep up with it? Well, I will say it is not easy, but we have a fantastic 
team here and, you know, the fact that we all know that what we are doing, our mission, that keeping up on top of this uh, patchwork of sort of state laws is to help people find out what they can access. And so I think that our mission really drives us all to do our best and keep keep on top of that that sometimes, especially during the summer, quickly changing landscape um, of what was available in states. Let's get let's get real specific. Uh, Talk to me about either one piece of information you're trying to get out or organizations you're working with. Give me an example of one real concrete thing, whether it's in this state we're doing this or I'm working with this legislator to accomplish this. I think it helps uh, our listeners understand exactly what it is you're you're doing at Power to Decide. Sure, absolutely. So one of the biggest things that we want to get out there is that we operate in a website called abortionfinder.org. And in terms of keeping up on top of all of the the state laws and whatnot that we said, abortionfinder.org is the largest verified database of abortion providers around the country. We know that when people are seeking abortion care, uh, having to sort of wade through disinformation or misinformation on the internet uh, can be just overwhelming. So we want folks to be able to get to that information quickly and be able to rely on it. So abortion finder, you can find the closest abortion finder, uh, closest abortion provider to you, which may be several states away. I know in Illinois, you are surrounded by a lot of states that have banned access. Um, so you can find the closest provider how through, through how many weeks in pregnancy they are providing that care, as well as resources uh, to help folks, what are called practical support organizations that may uh, help you uh, defer the cost of travel or paying for the procedure um, or, you know, help you get a a ride somewhere or or whatnot. Um, So this is a very valuable website website to anyone who is um, seeking abortion or trying to help a friend or a family member who is seeking abortion care. You know, I've talked about this site. I've known about this site. I never realized it was your organization that put this site together. Shame on me for not uh, digging into it uh, a little deeper because it is, um, you know, it's it's like literally one stop shopping. You know, you don't have to worry about what your girlfriend thinks or what your what your other, you know, inner circle of friend advisors, what information they have or what they think you can do or what you can't do. I mean, here it is, just straightforward, the information and the resources that you need to, and here's the important point, make your own decisions. That's the part, I I just, that's the part, Tara, that drives me crazy, because legislators keep trying to reframe this in all different ways. But the bottom line is, it is using the government to have power over women. It is using the government to force women to have state-mandated pregnancies, state-mandated children. It is just, it is jaw-dropping to me that we are even having 
these discussions. Do you ever have days when you think, my God, I just can't get out of bed today. I can't fight this fight again. I need a break. Um, maybe not the get out of bed part, but I will say that, you know, in having to keep the, the website up to date with, with our team, um, we have been monitoring bills around the country, especially this summer. Uh, there were a lot of there were special sessions in a couple of states where they were trying to pass bans because they didn't have them on the books already, or or they may have been disputed. And honestly, um, you know, listening sometimes to these hearings uh, where there are where there are folks obviously on both sides of the issue, but hearing folks on the other side who don't want. Uh, women and people to have autonomy over their bodies. Yeah, sometimes that I, I would say more than get it gets me angry, <laughs> gets me feeling really down about what um, people think about women and other people who can reproduce or, or how much they don't think of us sometimes. I don't know. But yes, I definitely have felt um not my best (laughs) (laughs) listening to these hearings. But on the other hand, it it can make you all that more determined to make sure that other people have access to the correct information because you will hear people who are in the public hearing, um, which we all have, you know, that right to free speech to bring our opinion on legislation being proposed in our state. But you will hear people say things that are just, you know, factually incorrect. Yeah. And I am. Well, we're going to take a break and continue this discussion in a minute. What I always say is, look, if your religion teaches you that abortion is evil and you should never have one, then you know what? Don't have one. But don't hold me to the beliefs of your your religion. And I think that. I think that it gets it gets really murky and um, and people don't seem to want to acknowledge that not everybody sees the issue the way they do. And and some of the religious zealots that think it is just um, it's it's doesn't matter. I've heard people say, well, you know, if the mother dies because it's a difficult pregnancy, well, that's what God wanted. That's what God meant. And I just want to pull out all of my hair when I hear people saying things like that. And I am so glad that organizations like Power to Decide are trying to get the truth out there. I'm talking to Tara Mancini, who's Power to Decide's director of public policy. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Tom Hartman. I just don't understand why somebody would risk getting a disease that in a small percentage of cases produces dementia. Who wants to risk that, right? Or produces heart attacks or produces strokes. It makes no sense to me, particularly when more people have gotten this vaccine. I mean, billions of people have gotten this vaccine now. It's a safe vaccine. I just don't get it. The Tom Hartman Radio Program, weekdays 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by the organization Power to Decide. Tara Mancini is Power to Decide's Director of Public Policy Power. Well, you know what? Rather than me telling people, Tara, you're here, you tell people what Power to Decide is, what the mission is. Sure. Thank you, Joan, for having me. Um, so our we are a national nonpartisan organization. We are based in D.C., and our mission is to advance sexual and reproductive well-being for all people. Um, we work at the federal level, but we also monitor what's going on in states across the country um, when it comes to uh, abortion access and, and contraceptive access. Now, Tara, the, your organization is nonpartisan, and I'm old enough to remember when there were prominent pro-choice Republicans I think they still exist. I just think that they've learned not to talk about that. You know, when these discussions come up, I think they leave the room. Do you ever hear from Republicans that say, you know what, you guys are doing great work? Gosh, you know, maybe maybe someday I'll be able to support you publicly. Do you hear from conservatives? Well, you know. You know, over the years, we have, like I said, our history is uh, a bipartisan one, and and there used to be more pro-choice folks on both sides of the aisles, um, and that has really decreased. And so, you know, it's a little bit harder these days, but I do think that we are seeing in Congress, as well as uh, across states, where it has become clear that many of the anti-choice, anti-abortion laws that are being introduced um, are not supported by the will of the people. We saw in Kansas and, and several other states where um, constitutional amendments were that would that would outright, you know, ban abortion were rejected over the last election. And I think that has really shown that people, uh, anti-choice legislators, are not really representing their constituents by being so extreme to the the right, you know, are so extreme Mm -hmm. in their views on abortion without any... uh, exceptions and and all the stuff that used to be sort of common place. Take us through the kind of work you do. For instance, um, today is Wednesday. How will you be spending Mm -hmm. when you're not talking to people on the radio? And thank you. I appreciate you uh, taking your regular work time to do this. Like, what will you be doing tomorrow and Friday and next week? Who will you be talking to? What, where will you be? What will you be doing specifically? Sure. So one of the things that I do um, on the daily during this time of the year is look through all of the uh, an array of bills that have been filed in states across the country to uh, see which ones most would most impact the uh, folks who will rely on us for in, for our information 
um, including for abortion finder. And we also have a sort of a suite of um, tools and it's an advancing contraceptive access toolkit. So it shows you a few different types of contra- contraceptive access laws uh, in all 50 states. And that is really directed towards advocates to be able to use across the country as well as uh, policymakers. So being sort of a clearinghouse for information, um, for policy information is one of the things I do by tracking and monitoring um, bills across the country, as well as talking to um, or communicating with advocates in different states who, you know, may run up against, um, you know, either not not backlash quite, but um, objections from some Mm -hmm. about some type of legislation that they want to introduce or that has been introduced. And, you know, sometimes then my role is to say, well, let me connect you with this other advocate in this other state who has had... um, who has had uh, success in a similar sort of uh, political environment or giving them the resources that we've produced with sort of the facts on it, um, how many other states may have, and similar states may have similar policies. Sometimes that can be a big mm-hmm. push to states. Um, right? One thing like, you, you mentioned, some- so, sorry to interrupt, yeah, but you sorry. mentioned something. I want to make sure that we point out to people that the current discussions, the current battles aren't all surrounding abortion. What Tara just said is true in a lot of places, that there are places and there are companies, there are organizations that are trying to restrict what kind of contraception is available to people and under what circumstances. And again, just like there's kind of been this free-for-all in all the states since the Roe v. Wade decision, I mean, there have been horror stories about married couples who uh, on vacation realize they've forgotten their contraception and go to a pharmacy and the pharmacist refused to refuses to sell them contraception because it uh, this was a guy. It violated his personal religious beliefs. This isn't just a question about abortion. This is everything having to do with reproductive health and reproductive rights, including contraception. I think a lot of people don't realize that, Tara. Yeah, and Joan, you're exactly right, because, you know, abortion, contraception, um, a lot of the things that we're seeing, anti-LGBT bills, all of these things are really interconnected and are about bodily autonomy, people having the right to make decisions about their own lives, how they reproduce or don't reproduce. Um, And I think after the Supreme Court decision this um, summer uh, in June overturning Roe, that did embolden a lot of folks and to sort of, um, you know, take other take other actions. Like you said, I mean, there was a an instance in Wisconsin, actually, of a uh, cashier denying sale of condoms to a married couple. I think there has been a large backlash in much of the country, as, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, to the extremeness of these laws. So I haven't heard as many 
um, examples as of late, but we definitely are watching these things, not just us, but all of advocates in this space are watching because we know that the final destination of sort of the anti-choice movement is not just overturning Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I don't know if you know about this, but I, I, there is a court case and that is um, before a federal court in Texas where um, anti-choice advocates are trying to have FDA revoke its approval of medication abortion, which has been used and found safe uh, for Mm -hmm. over 20 years, 22 years. I mean, it was found just this Monday. I was talking to the ACLU about this and um, the decision has been has been put off for a couple of days. But nobody is holding out hope that it's going to be a reasonable decision because this is an extremely right wing judge. And nobody has ever said to the FDA, you know, I'm sorry, I'm overruling you. You said this was safe, but you know what? No, I'm I'm the court and I can undo this. It's just such a terrifying time, Tara. And I want to thank you for the work that you and Power to Decide are doing to try to get good, factual honest information out to people who need it and and to poly policymakers who need to have it too thank you thank you thank you for doing that and thank you for joining us to share your work with my audience thank you joan and i appreciate you shining a light on this subject and I'm sure it's something we're going to be talking about again and again and again. I'm sorry to say, Tara. Tara Mancini is the uh, Director of Public Policy at Power to Decide. We are going to take a break, and we're going to shift back to local politics right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are focusing on a lot of the races that you are going to see on your ballot if you live in the city of Chicago uh, we have been focusing today on the 45th Ward. Uh, James Gardner is currently the older person. In the last election, he unseated John Arena. And um, he is facing a number of challengers, at least one, two, three, four, at least five challengers that I can think of right now. Um, we uh, talked to one of those people, Megan Mathias, earlier. Now we're talking to James Saw who is a candidate to be the next older person in the 45th Ward. James, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Joan. I've never been on the radio before, so this is very exciting. <laughs> well, we will we will take very good care of you. Don't you worry about it. I know you're a small business owner. Tell me about your business. Yeah, it's our care auto spa. It's uh, hand car wash detailing, uh, vehicle sales, general automotive services. I've been doing that for 10 years. It's about half a mile from, from my home. I also work uh, downtown as a computer programmer. Oh, you do a lot, a lot of different things. Um, I know that sure, as yeah, a business owner, 
Yeah. As a business owner, you have had some uh, difficulties with the current alderman. Talk about that, if you would. Uh, so that's actually not specifically true about the alderman. Okay. Because my business happily is right outside of the ward, which is good for me because it actually does give me the latitude to speak a little more freely since I'm not putting my livelihood in, in jeopardy as has happened to some of the other business owners in the area. I know that there are businesses that have been subjected to visits by inspectors or tickets being issued, things of that sort, whenever they're... There have been a lot of accusations that the current alderman uses city resources to try to harass and or retaliate against people who either don't support him or actively work against him. That, that that is very much true. He has actually uh, harassed and and tried to retaliate against me specifically for organizing a rally in support of a local development. Uh, so yeah, I, I do have some personal experience with that. Uh, I've actually stood up to his tactics and really a breach of constitutional rights and filed a lawsuit against him, as have many others in in the area as well. Talk to me about that lawsuit. Give me specifics. Sure. Well, so this dates back to 2019. There was a development. It's called. It was called at the time the point. It was a hundred thirty million dollar development. It was going to bring with it six hundred and fifty union jobs, uh, hundreds of permanent jobs thereafter. At that time, I was not at all involved in local politics. I was just here as as a resident and as a nearby business owner just invested in seeing some progress and investment in in our neighborhood. I was looking at six corners to you know, potentially expand some kind of business ideas. And so that's why I was really looking forward to seeing some economic development in the area. And when that was obstructed just for petty political reasons, I was extremely frustrated by that. And so I organized a rally in support of that development. We had 200 of our uh, community members and neighbors come out for that. The media came out and covered it. Uh, after that, we there was just a lot of energy and momentum. So we formed a grassroots organization called Scope, which was Six Corners Organizing for Progress and Engagement. We organized a letter writing campaign to the Department of Planning and Development. So we really helped to move this development forward. But as a result, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, this is something that is just so. Uh, I don't know, perplexing to me, because rather than see that this is something that the community wants and needs, and as an elected local representative, you would think that that would be kind of a starting point for some sort of dialogue or or some kind of conversation or at least an indication that this project should move forward as it's what the community is asking for. But instead, he just chose to... Um, yeah. Again, tried to harass and retaliate me. He misused the resources in his office to improperly access court documents of mine, which were <laughs> it was like from when I was my brother and I were seventeen and uh, seniors in high school and got into an argument. And that was kind of the big dirt that he was able to dig up on me. Uh, but he took that and went to disseminate that amongst his supporters. So that was the basis for that lawsuit. Uh, it was, you know, certainly, again, just uh, misuse of his authority. So tell me, aside from what you don't like about the current alderperson, 
Let's put this in a, let's frame this a little differently. What are the things that you most want to accomplish if you are elected to the Chicago City Council? Sure. So when I'm knocking on the doors, the very first thing that's on the first and foremost of of everyone's minds is public safety. Uh, I actually had a little experience myself over at my business with, in relation to public safety, there was an armed robbery attempt. Uh, It was covered a little less extensively, but just a few weeks prior to that, some guys came into my shop and tried to steal one of our customers' cars. So, you know, I've been doing that for 10 years and never had any sort of you know, real issues with crime. But then I've had these two major incidences in a very uh, short intervening amount of time just quite recently. And, and it kind of feels like what exactly is going on? Things are not going in the right direction. So when, when people at the doors are kind of uh, anecdotally telling me that same thing, that same feeling that they've lived in these neighborhoods all their lives and things are just taking a turn for for the worst, I, I really do sympathize, you know, very personally and connect with them on those issues. So, you know, public safety is something I would certainly want to prioritize uh, first by ensuring that we have a fully staffed uh, 16th and 17th police district. And then secondarily, we also need to make sure that we have our officers responding to violent and dangerous crimes and we're able to shift the burden for some of these other types of things that they're responding to today to mental health specialists uh, substance abuse specialists uh, these kinds of folks who you know again are better equipped to deal with those issues so that you know police can focus on the sort of issues that make our neighborhoods less safe mm-hmm. and then third you know we do have to address the root cause issues of crime as well uh, you know we we just have had decades of disinvestment in our uh, public safety infrastructure as a whole. So, you know, again, we do have to start investing in like things like early education, uh, uh, you know, training in the trade programs, and, you know, things that are giving folks opportunities so that they don't have to resort to turning to crime. So public safety is the number one issue for whether it's a candidate for mayor, a candidate for older person, a state senator, state rep, anything. Public safety is always issue Number one, um, what would you say is issue number two for you in importance? Oh, sure. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's number two. I would say it's just as important as economic development. So, you know, especially in the 45th Ward, all along Milwaukee, we are littered with empty storefronts that have sat vacant, empty lots that have sat empty for a very, very long time. And you know, we really need to get back to a neighborhood where people don't have to just get in their car and drive to a different neighborhood just to have a decent dinner or do some activities with their kids. It's really just a bellwether for so much of what's missing, you know, whether that's uh, a, a, a good strategy for our housing infrastructure or for public safety, uh, road safety. I've talked about a lot about how all these things kind of interconnect. And when we have such a vacant uh, commercial corridors, then it's really just this indicator that there's a whole lot of other things that just aren't working. Mm -hmm. What is, aside from, you know, trying to get money from the city budget to to help with economic development, what is a non-financial way that you can support new businesses in the 45th Ward? Is there, if maybe there isn't one. Oh, no, I would say absolutely there are 
a whole bunch of different ways that we can help support businesses. I mean, number one, I think we do need leadership that actually has a vision of of, of a thriving economic uh, local economy. And, you know, what we need is someone who has had experience standing up businesses, you know, which is something that I've done, you know, whether that's uh, licensing or permitting, uh, zoning changes. I've worked with IDOT and CDOT to get uh, curb cuts. I've gotten funding. I've worked with uh, the city on their small business improvement funds. Those are huge ways that we can incentivize businesses to come here and also help the existing businesses not just survive, but also thrive as well. I'm talking to James Suh. He is running to be the older person for the 45th Ward. We are going to take a break and continue this conversation right after this. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm talking to... James Saw, who is running for the aldermanic seat in the 45th Ward. The seat is currently occupied by James Gardner, who defeated John Arena last time around, and uh, is facing six challengers on February 28th. Uh, James, I know that you are a small business owner, but you've also been on your local school council what have you learned as a school council and as a PTA member? Sure. Well, so my joining the LSC in the first place, I think, is a good example of my overall philosophy and sort of why I'm running for for office. I wasn't happy with a, some certain few things that were going on with my daughter's school administration. And rather than just sit there on the sidelines and complain about it, I decided to jump in and get involved. And that's the way where I could affect the most change. Uh, It certainly has been a a very interesting process just because the administration actually changed over in in, in the intervening time since I was elected. And then the start of the school year, the principal uh, actually left and there was a new incoming principal. So as part of the the principal selection process, it it was all a very uh, new and unexpected development. So I did learn a lot from that. Uh, But also being part of the PTA, it's again, you know, something that's very uh, representative of my views as a whole, which is that I did that solely because I was a member of the LSC as uh, elected parent representative, and I felt that I should really know all of the parents, which isn't really something that would happen over the course of just being a, a normal parent, I suppose is the best way to put it. So I, I joined the PTA so that I would be more directly involved in a lot of different school activities and have a more a natural channel of communication with the rest of the parent community so that I could be a true representative of their views. Tell me, speaking of schools, tell me about what was this that happened with sawhorses and sawhorses being taken away from some schools um, that were sawhorses that were used during pickup and drop off to kind of keep kids safe. What was that whole thing? Sure. So, uh, Alderman Gardner gave sawhorses to schools, uh, but these were sawhorses that he had constructed and they had his name uh, broadly displayed across them. Uh, some schools 
didn't want to implicitly politically advertise or I know some schools also just had like all yellow sawhorses. So they wanted to paint those sawhorses yellow, uh, things of that sort. So when he came by on the second day of school during morning drop off, when these sawhorses are put out to prevent uh, cars from going in both directions and keep the kids safe, he saw that the sawhorse out there didn't actually have his name on there any longer. And that incensed him. So he just took the sawhorses away from the schools right then then and there on the spot. So when I heard about that, then I just thought, like, that is so wrong. And, you know, like, like there's this ostensible purpose of keeping kids safe. But then once the self-promoting aspect of that was gone, he was no longer interested in having those sawhorses at the school. So, I mean, I felt that his true motives were, were really revealed by that act of taking those sawhorses away from the kids. So my daughter and I constructed some replacement sawhorses for those schools. And, you know, it, it was just a really fun project. So then after that, I went on social media and I just offered to do this at large for any school. And, you know, not even necessarily in the war, just any school that was interested in, in doing it. So we made over a dozen sawhorses uh, out of pocket at our own cost. And it was frankly Jeez. a little a little stressful just because uh, I had promised to deliver to so many different schools. So we had to really crank them out and get them over to the schools. But it was just a, a really good uh, instructive lesson, I felt, for my daughter. She felt really good about it. And it was just taking this negative thing and turning it into a positive. Well, speaking along those lines, as I said, James Saw is one of the candidates running to replace Jim Gardner. Uh, you also helped... Um, um, an unhoused man find shelter. Um, tell me about that. That that is true. This was right in the middle of winter, uh, right during the pandemic, when Alderman Gardner threw away all of his possessions, his food, his clothing, and then posted pictures of the cleaned up viaduct and how he was cleaning up the neighborhood on social media. I could not believe what I was seeing. Uh, and, and then what was actually even further galling is that a lot of his supporters were going online and saying, oh, thank you so much for cleaning up the neighborhood and also for helping this guy find a home and getting him off the street. Well, I went over there and, and, and I talked to him because I, I, I know this gentleman. His name is Kenneth, and he's been there for years. He's very unobtrusive, and, you know, he's not someone who is, uh, you know, just causing any sort of trouble. He's just very quiet, keeps to himself, and, and has been there for, for many years. And I spoke with him and asked him, hey, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, they just threw away all my things, and this has never happened to me before. And I asked if... You know, anyone had helped him to try to find, uh, so, you know, somewhere else to stay. And he just said, no, they just took all my things and threw them away. So I offered him to stay over at, at my business, which is heated and has, you know, hot, hot running water. And I said, you know, you can stay here if you like. And then I also just tried to raise some awareness for for him and his situation. And then and there was this huge outpouring of support for him. So that was really great. But then at the same time, I just felt like there was this uh, obligation to harness some of that interest and momentum. Because, you know, at this point now, there were stacks and stacks of blankets, more than he could possibly use. And they were, things were just getting thrown away. And I didn't want people to really um, just 
give a blanket over to him and and then think that the problem was solved. There's a larger issue of homelessness as a whole. And so I really tried to elevate uh, a, a pretty nascent group in the area, which is called the Jefferson Park Working Group on Homelessness, and divert all of that that outpouring of support to that group that could kind of adequately uh, help Kenneth and then also other people in, in need of those resources as well. So that was just kind of like another instance of just uh, you know, seeing a wrong and then wanting to get involved and not just complain about the issue or raise awareness of the issue, but also help to try to be part of the solution. Affordable housing and uh, finding a solution to those who are unhoused. Those are really, really big issues that uh, the Chicago City Council so far has not been uh, taking a lot of action on. I know there was a um, a, a move to increase the real, real estate transfer tax and to take that extra money to provide shelter beds and to provide housing. There was not a quorum, though, in the city council, so the measure I don't think even got into or out of a committee hearing, let alone a hearing by the whole city council. What kind of legislation would you be behind, and would you be willing to raise the real estate transfer tax to fund it? So, you know, homelessness is definitely an issue that I do um, care care about, of course. I mean, th- these are still our neighbors who live in the city. We need to make sure that we, you know, view them as as, as our neighbors and worthy of respect and kindness, just like anyone else. And you know, the homelessness that we're seeing is certainly a symptom of just a broken system as a whole. Uh, I, I do think that one of the first things that we need to do is have our warming centers open 24-7. Right now, they're only open from 9 to 5. And that's just, it, it, it's really the time when uh, people need access the least. It, it's, it's, it's when they're uh, resting at night or, you know, so, I mean, if we're, we're looking to try to get uh, some of these individuals employed, that's right in the middle of working hours. So really, it's providing the, the least benefit and utility. And then secondarily, the city hasn't invested in housing, uh, shelters or services and mental health clinics for decades as well. Uh, so I, I do think that just like crime, we need to tackle the root cause causes of homelessness and just invest in our public infrastructure and services again. Are there any issues we haven't talked about that are near and dear to your heart that you want to see the Chicago City Council take on? I am a very, very ethical and principled person. Uh, I think some of the examples that we just talked about, you know, regarding the sawhorses, uh, regarding uh, you know, our, our neighbor Kenneth, are good examples of where I have stood up and taken action to defend our common core values and basic decency in a way that none of the other candidates in the field have done or can really point to specific instances. Uh, and this is well before I was ever running for office, just because I just thought it's the right thing to do and somebody has to stand up and do it. So uh, to come back to your question, you know, I, I would strongly uh, try to be an advocate for ethics reform in city council uh, just because the OIG and the Board of Ethics just don't really have enough authority and the penalties aren't severe enough to deter a bad actor in an elected office. So we're essentially relying on the voters to 
elect someone with integrity because they're not going to be able to legislate that in any way. James Saw running for the aldermanic seat in Chicago's 45th Ward. He will be on your ballot if you live there this coming Tuesday. Wish you a lot of luck, James. Thanks for spending time talking to us. It has been a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Punch number 56. Okay. Uh, That's going to do it for me today. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Santita will be here tomorrow at 6 a.m. And I will join you tomorrow at 2 p.m. Until then, have a great night and stay safe, my friends. Good night.